Welcome to episode four of Waterculture, and this time we're going to look at Forgotten Futures, uh, originally published in 1993 by stores of the British role-playing industry and generally good egg, Marcus Rowland. Uh, Not to be confused with the Marcus Rowland in the film industry, of course. Indeed. Apparently. Happens a lot, I'm told. Another one? Yeah. So, this was originally shareware, um, though since 2016 it's become freely available with donations encouraged. So, it is out there. You can have a copy. All you need to do is click on a link we'll put in the show notes. Hmm. Do um, the show notes? More or less. It's <laughs> exciting. Uh, and feel, feel free to disagree. I, I would characterise it as the futures of past ages, at least originally. You know, it was, yes, some Victorian scientific romances which were conveniently uh, out of copyright and freely available, so could be included as source material. Um, you, John, you, oh, sorry. I thought John would be good to elaborate on scientific romances and the difference between it and steampunk, or am I jumping in too quickly? Maybe. Oh, go, go uh, for it. Um, also, uh, th- there's actually a line in the introduction from Marcus Rowland about what Forgotten Futures is, and he talks about the the sort of visions of the future that were written in the Victorian and Edwardian age, and that's what it's based on, those stories. And it says, Forgotten Futures is a role-playing game based on these discarded possibilities. Which I thought was a rather lovely phrase. Mm. Um, But yes, despite the fact that the first time I came across it was in 1997 in this handy pamphlet given away with Arcane magazine, which is effectively the summary rules, which you can also get um, free on the web. On the back of this, it actually describes it as um, a civilised steampunk world, but it it really isn't. It does, says it on the back. Steampunk is generally regarded as being taking sort of ideas of uh, or sort of tropes and elements of, of Victorian, particularly heavy engineering side of things and using that as kind of an aesthetic to influence stories about what the world would have been like if, for example, Babbage had made a fully functioning programmable mechanical computer that had, you know, had a big impact on the world despite the fact it would have been the size of a warehouse. Uh, everybody suddenly fell in love with um, Ada Lovelace, despite the fact that she'd almost been completely forgotten because of steampunk. Uh, she really became a sort of huge, um, surprisingly well-known figure. And they even named languages after her. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, Babbage himself was Ada. pretty obscure. The only thing anybody knew about Babbage was that... Um, yeah, you know, he was a mathematician. Nobody got on with him, and he absolutely hated street mu- uh, street musicians. <laughs> but he's sort of become this um, forgotten wizard of of um, computing. It, it, well, yeah, when I first moved to Totnes, which must have been fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, um, that's where he was born. That is, and they made nothing out out of it until no. later in. There, there was there was a reference to him in the museum. Because effectively it was a dead end. You know, we didn't have a straight line from his work and Lovelace's work on programmable languages for computers going up through Turing and all the rest of it. There, There isn't a direct development. And that's yeah. why he and various other people were largely forgotten. Yeah, and you, you, became fiction. Yeah. You, you can <laughs> say that Lovelace invented certain programming techniques and that's fair enough, but the people who came along and invented them afterwards weren't aware that she'd done so. Yes. Right, yeah. right. She's a fascinator, because she's Byron. Is she Lord Byron's daughter as uh, well? Only, and, only and legitimate very... child. 
Uh, yes, and sort of shared uh, some of his passions as well. So amazing character in the Rogue the, the, yeah. the, the, the one. They're actually terrified of her turning out like him. Yeah. Yes. So, so she was given an extremely did. boring upbringing to, to try to re- uh, reverse this tendency. Um, uh, there's some of Forcing the, her to learn maths. <laughs> <laughs> Probably actually trying to actually cause her, f- make her brain swell and die, I would have, I would have thought. I thought the maths was frowned upon as well, I didn't think. Anyway, we're sidetracking a little bit. It's very so easy to sidetrack with this because you've got, um, you've got two main things, you know, what is <laughs> steampunk, what is science, scientific romance? How does that relate to science fiction? Mm. Where does Forgotten Futures come into it? So steampunk, if you've got a steampunk game, you can pretty much guarantee there will be um, a difference engine or an analytic engine, Mm. one of Babbage's mechanical computers. Because frankly, they're cool. People have built these things, and they really are absolutely amazing. Um, He never completed the, the final um, version. He did the analytical engine, didn't he? Uh, no, he did the other way around. He did, other way around. He did the, the analytical engine, the one he didn't complete. And it was always money, um, because he he was not very good at getting on people's good side. He was, in fact, he very, really very good at getting on people's <laughs> bad side. <laughs> so you've got that side of people now, the whole aesthetic with the corsets and top hat, everybody's got goggles on for no clear mm. reason. Steam-powered <laughs> cars, which in fact were a thing, just like electric-powered cars were really big in um, late Victorian and Edwardian era, mm. and then kind of Literally disappeared. Right Steam vehicles were surprisingly common. Yep. Um, not very common, but more common than you'd expect. It was only the Red Flag Act, which I can never remember, what the, which I'm sure you will tell me what the actual act, act properly is, but... Uh, that was the thing that, st- that stopped them, wasn't it? Well, the major, there is a major issue with steam-powered vehicles, and that's the amount of time it takes to get the steam up. Uh, you, you do not get a situation of somebody fleeing from the scene of a crime, hot-wiring a car, and racing away <laughs> if it's steam-powered. You get them turning up, stoking the boiler. <laughs> well, more, more, more to the Desperately point, trying to get away. You, you tell your chauffeur to go and do it half an hour before you want to go somewhere. Which <laughs> exactly. In, which in yeah. 1912. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a plausible thing to do. It's a lot more like having a coach and horses in many ways, with the possible proviso that horses don't explode quite so often. But still, again, sidetrack. Yeah, feeding him wrong. So yeah. your scientific romance isn't that sort of aesthetic. It's basically people in... Um, well, Victorian is what you tend to think of, um, bleeding into Edwardian. These these things didn't really survive the war as a general movement. That everything changed after the war, because um, a lot of this was really quite fanciful and hopeful, and um, opinions mm. opinions moved. So you've got a lot of these stories are utopias. There there are a lot of um, quite religious ideas in them as well. There's very often a struggle between people who were thinking trying to get science and religion to balance in their own heads, I think. Lots of stuff about um, equality, feminism, the surprising number written by women, all sorts of things that are kind of satirical, and a lot that are uh, societies where a person finds themselves in this society, and they're sort of used as the um, the everyman figure, you know, the viewer uh, representing the reader. And then you get kind of shown around, there's almost never a plot in any of these 
things. Some of them can be quite tedious. Um, <laughs> they get shown around the place, and you see all the differences, and it's really what they're doing is actually showing you what things were like at the time it was written mm. by making this, here's what society could be, or, oh, look at these ridiculous things. It's got a lot in common with Gulliver's Travels, that kind of stuff. That, that's very t- I've read a few Jules Verne in my time. They're actually very similar, quite tedious, plotless things where you get info dumped. The cha- chances are, though, you've actually read the... Uh, you probably read them when you were a kid, for example. Uh, I've, I've free oh, yeah. Kindle version, so no, relatively... Right, if you found a free version, so. there's, mm. a, there's a disappointingly high chance that it's a terribly abridged, chopped up, or in some cases totally mm. rewritten version of Verne. If you can't okay. read them in French, you, you hit this slight problem that the British mm. were really snobbish about Verne. Decided it was kids' books, cut out a lot of the actual scientific stuff, and in some cases just thought, oh no, this is ridiculous, and wrote a different story uh, that they tacked onto half of of his. So a lot of the Bird I have is nothing like the original. My memory of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is it suddenly dumps a whole stuff about the taxonomy of biological creatures um, for quite some time. Uh, Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. so. I would have appreciated someone doing that to the version that I read. Um, but yeah, anyway, sorry. Yeah, I mean, there's a debate whether Verne is actually scientific romance. Nobody really has a definite answer to it. Brian Stableford puts forward a very strong argument for things. He tends to leave Verne out. He puts in a slightly different thing. Okay. The first science fiction novel, supposedly, is Frankenstein. But that's just because Brian Aldiss said so and was being a bit controversial. <laughs> you can find examples of science, of, of recognizably science fiction before mm. that, and questionably science fiction bef- well before that. I'm sure they've done true science fiction on, uh, earlier than that on, um, uh, Chris Lackey and, and Chad Fyfer's podcast, whose name I temporarily forgotten. HP Literary Podcast. That's right. I'm sure uh, I don't know if they have. They've covered some uh, stuff by Rosny, who was late 1800s. Yeah, when was Frankenstein? Uh, uh, bugger, forgotten. Frankenstein's about 1820. I didn't know this. So. It's not 1818, is it? It's um, yeah, it's around the eight. It's around 1820, give or take. Did I write it down even? I uh, probably I'm should have done if I didn't. Chaps to switch to my phone so Public, my laptop was not smoking. Okay. It was 1818, uh, okay. Alright, Tim, we'll see you in a second. Okay. We'll um, see. But see you on the other side. The, the thing is, then, this started off, uh, as, as we've been saying about something about romances, but, for, but late, later volumes uh, have got, got into... Oh, uh, melodramatic adventures or mm. uh, overt fantasy. Yes, uh, and there's, there's much more recent. Uh, I mean, you've got uh, you've got the Edith Nesbitt books. That's a different approach. That's sort of fantasy and kids' stories. Um, Joe Walton's Tooth and Claw about a society of Victorian dragons mm. is a, a fairly modern, by my standards, novel. Um, in that the author is still alive. <laughs> And uh, I think, we I think Marcus Rollins probably possibly a friend of hers. I think that's how how he came to do. But this. would we agree that there are similar aesthetic in that they're all not they're different. None of them are steampunk, for instance. No, they're and, not. And they're steampunk. all a similar sort of literary aesthetic. So some, somebody like George Griffith probably wouldn't have minded writing steampunk. No, but, if, it, but it wasn't um, available for him to write. Yeah, this is the thing. He. he 
was coming up with ideas that now sort of seem weirdly quaint because we're not deliberately taking these modern twists on the Victorian thing and sending it back and saying, hey, what if we came up with a Victorian mobile phone? What would that be like? I think for me that's that's the difference with Steve. I, I feel I can be very derogatory about Steve, but I, I really like it. I love the aesthetic, but it is a very sort of backward-looking projection of our times onto their well, I, society. I think a lot of the time it's deliberately starting with a modern social sensibility. Yes, and, so, yes. and saying let's let, you know let, let's have that in in Victorian society because let's face it, Victorian society wasn't a very nice place to be unless you're on top of it. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If I mean, if you're a woman, there's a very strong um, feminist aesthetic and an awful lot of uh, women who are involved in various steampunk movements, the makers' movement, and so on. Uh, and so it's very attractive to be able to yeah. take elements of those formal clothes, make them a little yeah. more adventurous and exciting and, and um, outlandish, and play as equals yeah. in a sort of fantasy version of that society. But I, I think fantasy is a good thing. To me, steampunk is a, is a fantasy set, because there's all manner of things you have to do to keep the society in that place, well, yeah, you, but you, invent you things that... You can get more or less scientifically plausible about it, but... And, you and can, but then... The thing is, you have because to modern, modern steampunk fandom is... Yeah, most fandoms are about a particular set of literary works or television works or whatever. You know, you Star Trek mm. fans, Star Wars fans, whatever. Um, but there is no canon of steampunk books that you have to have read to participate in the fandom. You just have to get Although, the aesthetic right. Yeah, they expect you to read the difference engine, but that's yeah. about it. But that's probably only because that was the first real identifiable steampunk. The, also, the it was first one that people. Sorry. Also, it was rubbish. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. the, f- the first first ones came up with um, I mean K.W. Jeter who coined the term had written a book in 79 called Infernal Devices I think um, mm-hmm. but he didn't coin the term until 87 and it was him and Blaylock and uh, Tim Powers yeah. who were writing all these sorts of stories and they are basically the group where steampunk kind of evolved because they were right. all writing similar types of stories but they didn't come straight out of the blocks with what you would recognize as being totally steampunk uh, infernal devices has got all kinds of uh, lovecraftian side to it and uh, it's a bit weird and dickensian in places mm-hmm. and uh, a bit of a dramatic ending and the sexual perversion side of it is also perhaps not what people go for in the aesthetic. But I don't know. Well, I guess that's right. If we get back, get back to the game for a moment, though. Yes. Um, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Can we talk about games? Um, um, jo- John in particular, because uh, you, you've run most of it that, that I've actually played, um, mm. what, 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 what attracted you to the, this particular game? And whether the genre or the game, what, what, what uh, caused you to think I will run a Final Futures game? Well, I saw... This, which was this pamphlet, uh, free with Arcane, which is a, a long defunct British role-playing magazine, and quite a good one actually. It was um, 1997, so the game hadn't crossed my awareness at all, uh, even though it had been out for about four years, and that's probably because it was it was shareware. I was doing different things. I was uh, in America for a lot of the time. It was totally unknown over there. And didn't really have regular access to a computer, wouldn't have been able to get hold of something on a floppy disk and um, and access it like that. So it's only when I saw this giveaway that I thought, well, this looks really interesting, I like Victorian type of thing. So I bought the magazine anyway and read it. 
And it's when you start reading it and see that it's actually, despite the fact it says on the back it's steampunk, which it's not, um, <laughs> it, it's something different. It's got a very simple, relatively straightforward system hmm. with broad skills, which, as it turns out, suits the scientific romance idea very well. Having oh. somebody who's got something it's like. Just gone. Are you alright? Yeah, okay. I'm here. I'm here. Is that. Oh, Nick's that gone. is him that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> Are you teleporting, Nick? Still <laughs> uh, yeah, You all froze. So okay. Sorry about my well, audio you've got, you've If you've got skills, for example, like um, doctor, you know, scientist, that's basically, if you're a scientist in uh, Forgotten Futures, yeah, that's any science. All of them. Because that tends to be what characters are like in the in the stories. Hmm. You don't have to wait for the chemist to turn up. You're you know, if you're a scientist, well you can do the chemistry. Hmm. You might have a special process that you don't know about, but that's a different thing. And I like simple systems, so hmm. I thought yes, this is quite good. And then I started looking into the additional sources and um, bibliography. And that's when it really um, took over a big portion of my life and wallet and it pointed me towards a load of particularly since the internet's come along a load of different books uh, studies about them uh, a lot of academic stuff as well as the stories and of course a ton of this is available for free on something like Project Gutenberg so you can read about a bizarre story like the log of the flying fish or the brick moon or something like that you can just go and download it for free because it's public domain so then you start getting interested in the background and seeing how different it is from uh, science fiction generally and um, certainly from steampunk. And so that's when I got more from it. If you would just look at this pamphlet, which as I say is basically the introductory kind of summary rules and one adventure, you only get part of the flavour. Um, you, you, you don't get from this really what makes it not steampunk, hmm. I don't think. But of course, it's not science fiction either, because the term science fiction didn't come along until 1926. Hugo Gernsback, and he wanted to call it science fiction. Just <laughs> <laughs> oh, the oxytocin all over again. Um, yeah, well, I, yeah, it is actually. I mean, it's one of these things you go think there aren't any sci- uh, science fiction stories. Of course, you have to call it SF fun. now if you're a serious fan. It, it, yeah, don't call it sci-fi. sci-fi. Yeah. I, I found that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, uh, Asimov felt that, that sci-fi should be reserved for the stuff on television, which, because it wasn't written by Asimov, was rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> You're not suggesting that uh, the professor... Had that, is a, that is a man who knew a thing or two about turning out rubbish. Strong, uh, sorry. Strong <laughs> I'm not the biggest Asimov, but his character suggests shit. Sorry. Anyway, um, ah, now it's funny you should say that, because if you're talking about scientific romance... Don't get really involved in stories where you're looking for a, a strong character, because very often the characters involved, the main one won't have a name, <laughs> certainly won't have a personality. Do you know, mm. there are very to me, uh, just a slight sidetrack, uh, there is pretty much only one author for me that can pull off an interesting story with a with a, a just utterly rubbish character, and that is Lovecraft. I, I just find his worlds and his stories so compelling. I don't care that his characters are paper thin and useless. But what do you think about War of the Worlds? I mean, uh, I think a lot of people write, think of a very early science fiction story. I think the majority are going to pick one of the first few that Wells well, put out. 
Wells is a really good writer, though. He's a really compelling yeah. writer. Okay. Uh, what do you think of War of the Worlds? Do you think? Do you immediately say to people, "Oh, I enjoyed that. What a terrible main character." But I'd agree with that. What do I think of War of the Worlds? Yeah, I, yeah I, I, I think it's spoiled by the by the lack the fact of an that the main character. Main character. Is a but basically. even then, in War of the Worlds, he meets other interesting. Characters. Even though he's not interesting, there is a lot of human interaction that's interesting, which is almost yeah. unheard of in Lovecraft. Or Asimov, <laughs> for instance. But Lovecraft, I don't know, there's something about his world building that I find extremely compelling. But right. Asimov, although he's clever, I just, I just don't. I'm plus, I don't know, I, I quite like the foundation stuff. No, to me, I just have a fundamental problem with foundationalism. But the, what, the, the future, uh, the, the psychohistory, I just don't believe it would work. And so that kind of spoils You're the entire... You're going to problem with a lot of scientific romances. <laughs> the one in which yeah, they make, okay, I they make a space station yeah. stroke satellite out of brick and launch it from giant flywheels powered by a waterfall, but it gets launched accidentally and goes up too soon with the kind of skeleton crew of people who aren't supposed to be there. It's basically and Space 1999. <laughs> it is, it is, but it's the brick moon. Right. Uh, that's one. Um... If you look through, if you get really upset about tiny scientific flaws and things that mm. aren't, aren't I try likely, not to, that's going to be a huge problem because the Thames Valley catastrophe uh, is basically about what happens when a massive volcanic eruption swamps London and the Thames Valley. Now, I don't know how you are on geology. I'm not great. I, d- I don't need much but, of a uh, hand wavy, but I do need some. Well, do, do, do let us bear in mind that uh, one, one of the Forgotten Futures volumes, Tsar uh, Wars, yep. the, the novels of George Griffith, uh, th- this is basically the techno-thriller of its day. You know, he was hugely successful. The, the, the unstoppable new military weapon, the flying submarine, which is can yep. clearly out, outfight any other warship. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of stories. I mean, uh, Wells wrote them as well. Um, a, a lot of war stories, a lot of invasion of England, particularly. It's always England. You're never going to mm-hmm. story about the invasion of Wales. Um, they were very much. It had already happened. If they get to London, we're absolutely doomed. But they can take over anywhere else. Cardiff, never mind. Didn't Michael Moorcock do something along those lines? Well, Michael Moorcock is hugely influenced by scientific romances. He actually put together a couple of volumes, one of which is called England Invaded, in fact. Anthologies of stories on that very subject by people of the time. They're all reflecting um, not just crazy scientific ideas of the time, but using scientific notions and invention to convey the the, the real um, the anxieties of the time, which is a lot what science fiction does now. Even though most people think it's you know bug-eyed monsters and ray guns, still it's a thought occurs to me. Maybe that's why it works well as a role-playing game because if you're trying to emulate a strong character in a role-playing game. That's, that's difficult. But if you've got ciphers in the story and you can just put your own characters into the story, maybe that works better than trying to be hand-sobo. Yeah. Well, is that, that, is that why Lovecraft works so well? Is that why Cop Yes, works perhaps so. so. That's another thing. In, in, in a technical sense, they are melodramatic rather than dramatic, as in they are about struggles against external forces. And yeah, that's right. that yes. is the sort yeah. of thing that a role-playing game is typically about. So. Yes. Yes. Mm. Yes. But there's also... Well. There are also an awful lot of... Um, Apart from the the utopian stuff and a surprising amount of eugenics, um, there's all, also a lot of dystopian stuff and things about nature versus technology as well. Uh, 
books like um, After London. The, there are stories that take place basically after the world sort of been reclaimed by nature or mankind has been devastated. The Purple Cloud is uh, a pretty appalling thing where one guy goes up to the Arctic and due to his actions, basically everyone else dies. <laughs> and it's him just going back and finding it's, it's like, whoops, I've accidentally killed the entire world. <laughs> it sort of opens Pandora's box. There's an awful lot in these stories. Fred M. White, I don't know what London ever did to him, but all of his stories are pretty much about horrible things happening to London. Well, there's a whole supplement, one of the Forgotten Futures supplements Goodbye, is Piccadilly. Goodbye Piccadilly, which mm-hmm. is all about Five. different ways that London gets to destroy. Very much influenced by Fred M. White. Well. Uh, you know, the... In some ways, I think it's actually hard to come up with ideas that can can play a game in those environments because what are you playing against? The, the actual environment itself is not necessarily hostile anymore, but the world mm. has changed. It's being used as an allegory or whatever. And you've, you can't just take that at face value for the game. Looking at the game for a moment, um, this is one that I, th- I think is the first game that uh, three of us have run. Uh, yes, I think it probably is. So, Mark, Nick, how, how did you? Well, so that came about because John, I suppose I'm one of the other, the oldest, in that John ran this for very early on because it seemed to work quite well with young, not with young, with smaller player groups. Um, and so you, it was one of our first Warts and All Ethanauts games, yes, as I recall. I think one of the first, it might have been the first, that you ran us through uh, uh, an introductory adventure uh, on a ship and then on a moon. And yeah, it was Cabin 12A, I think, is the first one. And mm-hmm. then Moon Moon 02, which was a sort of follow-on adventure. Yeah. Well, I, I, I found it really evocative. And one of the most... Remains one of my most fun. I'm not saying everything else has been rubbish <laughs> since, uh, but, but it remains what one a of my most. Life has been since that <laughs> basically been all downhill from there. Um, I, 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 I was initially du- so for me, I was initially dubious about the system because I like a bit of crunchiness, or I always think I do. Uh, I kind of enjoy reading it and imagining it. Whether I actually enjoy playing it, I'm not sure. But I, I do like a bit of crunch. And so a two d six system to me. Because it is basically a 2d6 system. I, I mean, for me, that's like Traveller, which is the best system in the world. Um, uh, or, oh, I don't know, Fighting Fantasy, I don't think of any. So I, I wasn't uh, too excited. And it's, it's basically the system is, you roll two dice, and it's a bit like the um, resistance table in Cthulhu, is it's the core mechanic, that you roll no one characteristic... Sorry, in old Cthulhu, you roll one characteristic against another, consult a matrix, and although you can work it out in your head, basically you're, you're looking down at the matrix and have to get under a certain number. But yeah, equal uh, to uh, or less than. So it is pretty simple. Um, but it's also, what I found surprising about the system, it's, it's actually complex enough that it's quite nice to, a bit like I find with GURPS in a way, it, it, it's a very simple system but you can bulk things onto it and improvise within it quite well to make it feel like you are in control as a GM Well I would just say one thing just mentioned the um, the damage system, the way that Ooh. sort of operates it works in wounds and because it's basically the same system you're doing as, as normal for anything else you're making a particular role the different weapons are more likely to create a certain sort of wound. Yeah. So it actually has a degree of realism where you yeah. aren't likely to punch somebody's head off. But on the other hand, if you shoot them in the heart with a with a shotgun, 
quite a chance that they're at least going to be hospitalised. So I think that works well, even though it's a simply done system. Yeah, I think I, it was not as simple as it first appeared to me, or at least it, it is simple, but with enough complexity there. Nuances. I, nuances is, is exactly. So I, I like the system, and I, I love the setting. So that came about because then... Did we do another one with you in it, Mark, as well? Or did we just decide at that point that we were all... I, I forget how it came about, but we decided we were all going to do like a parallel universe adventure, Forgotten Futures adventure. Yeah, I think I, th- I, th- I think I came... I, I think I joined because um, we'd sort of played together as a as a group in real life. You guys had sort of proved the the tech for actually playing... Online, if online back in the day. Oh, it's so long ago. <laughs> well, actually, it is. I know, I know. Don't, <laughs> don't. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, so, 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 so I came along and sort of uh, and, and and joined in. Uh, as you say, um, I think um, I think we played one, and then we all started trying to take a turn for for being a um, being the person in charge. Um, we were sufficiently taken by it that it seemed like a nice idea to almost. I think the original idea was we all played the same characters, except yeah, that one. I was a little bit. Um, I don't think I'd realised what changes would be needed to the individual characters. Really. It was slightly ambitious in the end, so it didn't yeah. quite work it, out that it way. Supplied, I think. Yeah, than necessarily ambitious. But it was... I think you can do it with this this game, but not the way I suggested. <laughs> So I think would, did you run that? So John, you ran Moon O Four, which was Moon amazing. Yeah, I don't know. I always think it was O Four. Maybe we played it in O Four. That's interesting. Um, uh, uh, Twenty thirteen. Uh, wow. Okay. Well, that's not as long ago as I thought. I hadn't met you in O Four. No. <laughs> Wow, okay. I I said, I'm just at an age now. I've gone days. through the everything I think happened a little while ago is ten years ago. I'm approaching the age where everything I think happened a little ago was twenty years ago. So I just naturally did just guess about yep. seventeen years ago for that sort of that, that sort of thing. Um, oh, good. Well, that's encouraging. But the, the um, particular setting you went for uh, was it actually an adventure you ran from the world book, or did you just use the vampire idea? Yes. No. So I. Uh, thing. It, it, it was a vampire uh, thing. There's a number of world books, like yeah. twelve of them, and and I was just uh, thinking, ten, ten, ending I, with my, the 1930s sci-fi, which is quite different. My original well, idea, yeah. eleven. Let's be, let's be fair. Oh, is that eleven? Sorry, ten. Is ten Tooth and Claw then? Yeah, yeah. So we, you ran for us basically the the astronef. Yes, setting. the um, the ones based on um, honeymoon in space. The uh, George Griffiths. Uh, you know, wonderful, very elegant fly around the. Basically, you go, you go on your honeymoon in the stories. These, these aristocrats go on the honeymoon around the solar system, meet all these yeah. wonderful people, and very often shoot them. Is <laughs> it the one where the ship's doctor dies? I don't, I don't recall. No, no, yeah. we had to play out that exciting adventure ourselves. That was, yeah, um, was One really of the good. most marvellous pictures, and it's a beautiful illustration, um, shows these two characters. Looking out of the window of the astronef, their, their particular, um, sp- it's the first spacecraft. They're looking out the window at the, uh, the stars and everything, and just sort of raising a glass. And it looks like the most wonderful romantic moment. If you actually read that bit of the story, they are about to poison themselves because they think they're going to die anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very, very me, Julie. I'll tell you, one of the things that appealed to me 
in the game that you ran, there is a, a sort of a Lovecraftian vibe to the moon trip. In that there's a sort of an ancient civilization, and that's probably got more to do with Marcus Rowland, an elder sort of ruin. Yeah, and I, that's probably got more to do with Marcus Rowland than actually scientific romance, because he did write for. In fact, he has actually written a Cthulhu moon-based adventure, which we've run through. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but I, yeah. So I, was, I the one I picked was. Um, yeah, uh, it was uh, basically um, vampire the vampire hunters, um, uh, and you were you were firing. You were looking for what is it? It's basically it, it, the idea was Dracula has come to uh, uh, the UK. It, it's sort of Anno Dracula style. Yeah, does a bit. Uh, well, not really. I suppose actually that's misleading because in Anno Dracula we sort of um, become part of society, whereas in this you're. Your vampire hunters, um, but it, it was versatile enough that it worked really well. And we ran the first adventure, which was there's something nasty in the woodshed. I don't think it recorded very well, or I, I don't know if we've got the recording. I don't still. think I've ever heard it anyway. No, no I, I don't think we released it for some sure? reason. There was a well, maybe we did the first one or two. I can't remember. No, I'll have to have a look. Oh, we well, so I really enjoyed running it anyway, and I had. Visions of running more. You you ended up going to the Pasteur Institute, perhaps. but uh, anyway, yeah, I, it was I, a traumatic I, bit with the small child vampire, which oh, upset you. And you. I thought this would be uh, this is a classic thing, and oh, I yes, gave you what, that was what I thought would be a moral a moral problem, and give you a quandary. Whereas you were just a, a, a small child who could potentially be saved from vampirism, but he was dangerous. No, you just spent the entire session deciding how to kill the bastard. <laughs> so it was it was a it was <laughs> no moral quandary. What sort flying vehicle? Yeah, Can't exactly. Take any chances? Yeah, but uh, I, I really enjoyed running it. I love, I love the system, uh, and it's probably what we've returned to. Since I would certainly run it again, I would certainly play it again. It's um, probably I the one that it's 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 definitely the one that we played the most. It's definitely yes. the one that we've or the system anyway, not necessarily individual um, story, you know, the same story arc or whatever. Because as as you said, you know, we, we generally tend to go for another. Um, Forgotten future. Um, yeah, the, I mean, yeah, there is crossover between some of them. In some cases, it's it's slight, uh, yeah. as in fact there was in a slightly sort of Lovecraftian way of him and his mates including ideas from one story and another from somebody <laughs> else's story. Yeah. That does happen occasionally in scientific romances. They'll take something, I think, from you know a story that. They've had nothing to do with, and they don't know the author. And occasionally you'll see. <laughs> Wait a second. Um, I was reading one by um, of all people, John Jacob Astor the Fourth, who was, I think, at the time the wealthiest man in the world, uh, and he wrote a, uh, a scientific romance, uh, which is called a, a journey in other, a journey in other worlds, something like that. And it's one of those things where you look at it and think. Isn't it interesting that you've got somebody who's got all this money and all this power and is, is this amazing businessman, and he writes a story where people go to Jupiter, and the first thing they say, and this is pretty much the first thing they say, they look out the window, see the mountains and the lakes and the trees, and immediately start saying, I wish we could mine those mountains for copper, and uh, oh, there's some animals down there, let's, uh, let's go on a hunt. And you've got these bunch of capitalist businessmen who uh, decide to go off, and it's like... You're just writing your own fantasy here, very much, aren't you? Voyage but to he, the bottom of he my wallet. One. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, of course, he died on the Titanic. Uh, last scene standing next to Jack Futrell, who was a, another author who wrote the Thinking Machine stories, but they're on scientific romance, they're detective. 
but just briefly, people you may not have thought would uh, be involved in writing scientific romances include Rudyard Kipling, who uh, wrote quite a few. Really? Um, John Jacob Astor IV, I mentioned King Camp Gillette um, of the best the man can get fame, the man who invented the... Uh, Safety razor type blade and really cap- uh, capitalised on that. The Victor Kayam of his day. Uh, well, very much, yeah. And he was into these sort of utopian visions that he was going to create this city on Niagara Falls, kind of powered by Niagara Falls. It was on a hex grid. It was amazing. It would have gamed so well. Um, so he wrote <laughs> Still one called Human Drift. And most bizarrely of all, uh, Somerset Strubin de Chair, who I suspect you may not have heard of. As well as being a poet, he wrote slightly scientific romancy stories, but was best known for being the Conservative Member of Parliament, and his daughter um, is married to Jacob Rees-Mogg. Show us how you can fall. Not not all stories end well, is all I can say. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Arguably, as we mentioned earlier, uh, the uh, Margaret of Newcastle, Yes, one of the very, very early proto-science fiction, at the very least, um, The Burning World. Yeah, it was, what was that, 1626, was it? Something like, yeah. Somewhere? Uh, no, no, it wasn't 1626, that's, that's Bacon, New Atlantis, uh, Utopian Society. That's often considered the first science fiction story. Yeah, I've heard of Bacon, is it? Yes. Yeah, Francis Bacon. Um, Uh, I I think one of the reasons you get a lot of female authors is, um, until the Married Women's Property Acts come in, anything a woman earns is legally the property of her husband, even if he has deserted her. Yeah, all, all, he, all he has to do is turn up and say, I want that money, and it's legally his. <laughs> and um, if one were writing, one could effectively be paid under the table and actually keep it. Right. Oh, is that why there was a lot? Okay. And it was one of the, one of the few things that a woman could do without being you know, out, out in public and visibly earning under her own name. That, that's why a lot of them are not uh, pseudonymous in the early days. Oh, that's what I was going to yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are several that they um, they weren't actually pseudonymous. They'd, they'd often just use their initials and a surname, and everyone would just go, "I wonder who he is." Yeah. Because, you know, <laughs> uh, oh, but there's also things like so Herland, um, Charlotte uh, Gilman. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a, a sort of feminist utopia type thing. There, there are an awful lot of, of feminist and equal rights and very progressive ideas that could use this medium. Uh, and we haven't touched on any of that stuff in our games. We've just killed <laughs> vampires and... So I've played a suffragette character. You you are playing a bit of a suffragette, I am, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In the Edwardian period, which is another thing steampunks miss a trick, because oh. they just focus on Victorian. But Edwardian times are amazing. Mm. I thought it's a bit of a narrow window, but then I suppose it says the Wild West, and that doesn't really stop. Well, one thing interests yeah. me, have any of us uh, played other Victorian or Edwardian-flavoured games? Yeah, yeah, um, loads. And, and how do they compare? Uh, well, let's see. You've got uh, for Fairy Queen and Country, which has obviously uh, got a bit of a magic system, um, and fairies That's in amazing it. Amazing engine, isn't it? Amazing yes. engine, which isn't a very good system. It's got uh, all those things you'd expect from an American version of an English Victorian game. Uh, it's got decimalised currency, for example. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, nice ideas, but disappointing. There was one called Age of Empire, I think, and it 
it wasn't around very long. I had a copy, and it was abysmal. And it goes for tons of money now, because there was a computer game with the same or a very similar name, and they basically said, you can't sell that, so... Well, what was the name of that? Again? I think it's either Age of Empire or Age of Empire. Uh, Age of Empire. And it's, it's, it's an absolute yeah. dog, you know, I don't know why people spend so much on it, but uh, if, if you see a copy, pick it up if it's cheap, because you can resell it, and if you're looking to buy a copy, don't. don't. <laughs> There's Castle Falkenstein, that's another one which is a little more unique in, as well as having a more um, fantastical side with dragons and all the rest, as well as picking up on the kind of clockwork, steampunky side. Um, Card-based mechanics, and I think it's, it's set quite a bit earlier than is normal. A lot of these things very much take place in the gaslight period, which is actually not not that long a period. It's kind of I'm not sure it's even Victorian, is it? I think it's late Georgian. What's that Cthulhu by gaslighting or is it? Oh, so, no, Castle of Falkenstein. Oh, okay. I was thinking it was, it was I think it's like space Yeah. That's generally considered the first uh, actual steampunk game mm. which was 89 so it, it, I mean it didn't have much time to actually uh, have any games using the word steampunk before that because the term was only coins in the 80s yeah that, that was uh, GGW yeah. and a, a really pretty old Frank system Chadwick. Really? Yeah. Do you know, it gets a lot of stick, but actually, apart from the melee system, I didn't think it was too bad. It's it's a bit uninspiring. It's got a lot in common with... It, it's not that it's broken exactly, it's that it's very dull. Yes, yes. Yeah. Do you know, that's exactly how I would have described... I mean, I've The adventures that. are very dull, except for what like Marcus Rowland wrote, funnily enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they just, they just did, it just doesn't grab you and you sort of play it and, you know, you think, oh, you know, ether ships, oh, it's going to be fantastic, you know, it's going to all be brilliant... I want to play an inventor. Okay, here is the list of things you can invent. Oh, we never played (laughs) inventor. No, there's a complete uh, complete supplement for uh, Forgotten Futures. It's my own invention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's the one that's got the really bizarre time travel ideas in it. About you have to cover certain distance physically, and that relates to the amount of time that you're shifting. So you, you as, get on a as ship. opposed to normal sane time travel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just put it in a DeLorean. You know, you might well steam powered, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did that. What about Gertz, there, Roger? What has that got to offer well, in see, this department? Well, uh, by William Stoddard, uh, which is I can't remember when it came out, um, but that was that was the third edition genre That's book. The same. The third edition. There's a there's an ex, there was an expansion for it for it with with equipment. Steam tech well. oh, and less than that actually wasn't it? And, maybe? Yeah, sounds plausible. And more recently, uh, there's a series of PDFs uh, by Phil Masters, which I, sh- I should say I, I've been a playtester and proofer on. Uh, mm-hmm. But basically, revising steampunk now that there's a whole lot more steampunk literature for people to draw from. Yeah. Um, the first one of those has a historical review of basically. The entire history of scientific romance slash steampunk, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, ha- not a bad history actually, and, and how it shifts over time. So you know, if if you want to set up a, a game based on scientific romance of this period, these are the major themes that tend to come up, and that sort of thing. It, it's it's really very handy. Mm, that's mm. Filmmasters who gets a thank you in Forgotten Futures. So it's a very small mm. world. Uh, well, the, is there a, a, a another um, stalwart of the British role playing industry? Is there a good straight Victorian? Or, or is it all steampunk? Uh, no, I don't, don't think, think so. so. The closest you would get, well, I mean, obviously, Gubbs Wild West. Gubbs Wild West, Gubbs Goblins, right. slightly early, but yeah. Um, in, in, no, that's in, in um, terms of that's act- not straight by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> <and> it's not. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, though, though GURPS Goblins is essentially a parody, of, a Dickensian parody of Victorian London. Yeah, right. Uh, okay. Except uh, everybody's a goblin. Well, yes, all right, it probably is. Um, but I suppose GURPS Discworld is similar. Uh, for for that matter, there's uh, GURPS Age of Napoleon, but again, that's a bit more specialised yeah. and a bit early. That is quite early. Okay. And it's so specialised. What was it like listening to these things then, Shim? I presume you've uh, actually heard some. I have. I've heard all the ones that are actually I can find um, at various points, although mostly quite a while ago. Um, I actually really enjoyed them. They very much made me want to play this game. Um, Which is, of course, as we said, freely available, so why haven't you done (laughs) (laughs) Mostly because I've been playing other things. Um, yeah, Good answer, and, fair enough. Yeah, also, to be fair, the time to actually read it properly, because yeah. I very much enjoyed the the themes and the content and stuff. And like you said, um, and maybe you want to talk about this a bit later, but the the mechanics seem very Convoluted. easy to work with. No, you see, I I disagree because not really funny about it. No, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna go out and limit. I love okay. playing it. I, I really enjoy it. I've GM'd it. I really enjoy GMing it. I have about as much knowledge as a as my cat, and I don't have a cat, uh, with uh, the actual mechanics. Um, I just basically <laughs> look plaintively at John uh, whenever whenever there's a, a man role. who is notorious for his complete yeah, ability to remember even the mechanics of twerps, which has <laughs> one rule, and I wrote some of it. That's the problem, with John. He's such a rules lawyer; you can't get anything past him. It's, it's a nightmare. Yeah. But um, yeah, so um, uh, there's a table involved. We look it up. I told it off the camera, but it would be of no use in a podcast. Is it unintuitive to you then? Is it because it's? I mean, it isn't. It isn't complicated. Is it perhaps not, not explained well, or is it just I think the system isn't no, intuitive th- to the way you think? I think it just does. I think it just doesn't roll to the way I think. But that's fine. In some ways, I actually think that's part of the reason why I enjoy it. Because I don't worry about what's going on with the dice, I just worry about what's going on with the story. Alright, okay. Okay, okay. And actually. But as a GM, thing- did, did, uh, did again, you struggle with. No. no, not particularly, because again, I'm more interested in the story. My thing is very much, um, you know, I, I, dice are obviously important, and I'm very much not, not, you know, I'm not a person who, um, would want to we're get not playing Amber anytime soon. We're not. We're, we're not. We're unlikely to play Amber anytime soon. Or if we are, we're going to ha- we're going to add dice in it. Uh, but uh, <laughs> which, which I think possibly miss, misses the point somewhat. Uh, but um, yeah, um, I'm perfectly happy um, with uh, with the thing. I think I love the background. I love the actual co- concepts of of what's going on. Um, I've always, whenever I've created a character, I've actually there's been some twists. There's been some some bits and pieces going on with the character that I've enjoyed whether I've actually added that in deliberately or whether it's just come from you know how I sort of created it or whatever um but for the life of me for even now I couldn't if you if you if you were to hold a gun to my head or even or, or one of my children's wow. heads and uh wow and I was actually in a, and I was in a good I was in a good enough mood to worry about that uh the um uh, I would um, be very. I would really be hard pressed to actually be able to explain the, 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 the mechanics to you. But, yeah. like I say, I think that's part of its strength. Okay. For me, anyway. You know, like I say, having run it. So, d- despite the fact that you're not 
well, really au fait with the rules uh, to a degree that even I'm finding surprising. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, trying to get me to, to deal successfully with the combat rules is uh, an effort in itself, uh, really quite deserving of some points. It's, mm, yeah, it, but you still come back to it, you still find it, it, it fun even to run it. Yeah, that's, I mean, but, but, uh, but I think that's, but I think that's partly because I think the, even though I'm complaining that the rules are complicated, they're not. I mean, the, 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 the rules actually in some ways actually don't get in the way of the story. Mm-hmm. And actually. Well, ha- having a universal mechanic makes life much easier, I think. Yeah. Because you just say, okay, We've got to the point where something is going to be resolved by a die roll. What, what is the attacking thing? What is the defending thing? Now we know what yeah. the answer is. Yes. But it's also a bizarrely um, specific and truncated universal mechanic because it, everything's very much on a human scale. And this shows up with uh, a rather odd obsession that Marcus Rowland seems to have with elephants early on in the rules. <laughs> I should point out also, it's quite funny. The, there's some very sly humour in this thing. It starts off by saying, obviously if you're reading these rules as written, there is a 1 in 36 chance for uh, you know a very weak man to successfully lift an elephant. So, well, you know, you might want to just say, no, that's never going to work. Um, what you need to do then is to, is to perhaps break the subject up into chunks, you know, or as he says, pass the saw, I need to cut up this elephant. <laughs> <laughs> He's then got uh, one where a guy creates uh, an exoskeleton, a suit of special pneumatic coveralls that give him amazing strength. Now, because that's off the scale, because the scale doesn't really go very high, what you have to do is divide the weight and divide the um, the strength so that things fit on the scale. And this comes up if you're fighting dinosaurs, because, of course, you've got things like you know, Professor Challenger and the Lost World, Conan Doyle's stories... You have things which are a bigger scale, but you have to divide by a few numbers to get them to fit onto that chart. So you've then got this guy going to lift the elephant, uh, which he successfully does. And then Marcus Rowland points out that the coveralls don't extend to his hands and feet, so the weight of an elephant is now pressing directly on his wrists and ankles and may be causing some serious damage. But that's (laughs) just the sort of example you get in it. (laughs) Uh, So, um, in terms of... You know, as, as, the, as the token audience member... Um, it, it was you! I knew there was one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the things that I really enjoy about it is, uh, I mean, not just, you know, compared to stuff you, you normally play, but it's, it's a little bit fantastical without being fantasy. It doesn't have, you know... Okay, there's potential for, you know, aliens, for example... But it's not full of magic, it's not full of Lovecraftian things, much as I enjoy those. It's, it's nice mm. to have something different. Um, the characters are a bit larger than life, but in a very restrained kind of way. Um, and I do think that makes it a very interesting experience, because it is it is that c- so close to being historical. Mm. Um, and in, in terms of the feel, you know, you're not having to get used to a completely different setting like with quite a lot of games. Um, yeah, I think I mean, maybe although the barrier the physics, to entry is quite low. Yeah, the physics might be different in that there might be something like, um, you know, the ether, which obviously mm. creates all sorts of problems with physics. But in terms of a real person, you're looking at the scale in Forgotten Futures and you could be as good as an Olympic athlete, but that's absolutely the top. 
you're mm. not well, you know, you're basically um, normal people the ether was it was a valid scientific theory at the time well it, it, a lot of it was the read. best available explanation for some contradictory evidence yeah, yeah I, I, I'm hearing or, that I'm hearing that that's not how physics works <laughs> <laughs> No, unfortunately. <laughs> Ask Roger um, about phlogiston. I mean, the, the standard model has got some problems, so let's not get too yeah. um, but carried yeah, away with it, our, well, our own knowledge. Specifically what, what Shim's talking about, it's that sense of, you know, you are dealing with recognisable figures. You aren't mm. dealing That's... with a fantastical world which has superhuman people that you're supposed to relate to. Uh, yeah. I, th- I, yeah, I, I find you can anchor really well there. Yeah, I think it may help you, you, rather than having, you know, sort of 20 novels or whatever, typically you've got two or three at the most in a particular setting. And very often just a short story. Or yeah, two. and, and they yeah. start in the real world and the, the story is about essentially how this world diverges from. Yeah. And, and yeah. so e- e- even if there are big things happening, you're, you're starting in a place people know about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in terms of, you know, the settings, Totally distracted by Shim's voice coming out of the darkness. <laughs> Sorry, let's <laughs> not on the podcast for a I can, uh, I can pop a light on, let me just do no, that. No, you're fine, don't, don't, don't feel any need um, to. Because you've, um, you've got that little bomb oh, no, that goes goodness, on the turn it off, turn it's it a off. bit like Knight Rider. All we can see is a sort of flashing <laughs> light. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, obviously there's fantastical settings, you can go to, you know, the moon, you can go to Venus, and so on, but... You know, if it's set on hunting on Jupiter, absolutely. Um, But you know, actually, so um, Fist of God and Shangri La are both set on Earth completely. Yeah, Um, they were great. I've forgotten about them. They were great. Well, that's what they led into the the series we've been doing more recently, which is the first original setting of of Mm -hmm. Even that's based on material. Yeah, yeah, Shangri La was sort of uh, the Himalayas, wasn't it? And Fist of God was. it was the, the Tunguska, um, the old... actually, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the Tunguska explosion. Yeah, Tunguska, and then yeah. you go on to um, onto Shangri La, which only recently have I been kicking myself that I didn't refer to it as Yak Dung Cthulhu because we've got the big <laughs> tentacle thing up in the Himalayas. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but... Well done, but you got it in anyway. Yeah. Well, but it's you funny know, you should mention was... Cthulhu because one of the things we did, one of the games we didn't mention. With our Victorian set, was uh, Cthulhu uh, gaslight gaslighting? What's it called? Cthulhu no, by gaslighting. We all mentioned it. Oh, did we? Yes. Yeah. Don't you remember? Yeah. But you were quite the, involved in the conversation. You see, yeah. the reason we brought it up then <laughs> is, uh, to me, one of the reasons I like it is because I love Cthulhu. Um, call it Cthulhu. I don't love Cthulhu. He's a huge flabby. Um, How I uh, to stop worrying and love Cthulhu. Yes, exactly. I love the role-playing game Call of Cthulhu, and to me, this feels similar. That may again be something to do with Marcus L. Rowland, who has been quite influential in many of my favourite adventures of Call of Cthulhu, or at least including um, Trail of the Loathsome Slime, which is one of the best. I'm going to run that for you. I love that game. I know it's really good. Um, I'm going to run that for you. I just love the title. uh, uh, We've got Master Slog through again. Yes, Slog being the operative word. Oh well, thanks. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's it's great, but I mean, you know, when we're, when we've played how many sessions now, when we're panic we're dead guy, we're only on the second point. <laughs> Gen- genuinely forgotten I killed your character. Oh, spoilers! 
those of you listening at home. <laughs> um, but I feel, uh, although the, the kind of, it hasn't got the cosmic horror uh, thing going on, you, you're relatively vulnerable characters in a hmm. relatively yeah. grounded, historically accurate setting with some fantastical elements. So to me, those things all mesh with Cthulhu and they tick a lot of boxes that I, which is a, another reason I really like the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there and is both quite, quite simple sorry, mechanics as well. So. Yeah, yeah, the mechanics are in the in the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, 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 there have been different versions of this. I mean, mathematically, it's basically the same. You know, it's att- attack plus defense, attack minus defense plus seven. Or that's not if you've got to get that or less on two d six. But some versions of the character sheet have a table at the bottom of the sheet, so you can just yes. look it up and. Although, yeah. although I usually like like the equation approach, it, it for me at least it does make it quicker to play. Just to have mm. that available. Yeah, you don't have to use the table. Uh, it's well, a simple you, thing. You surprise me as someone who prefers a table to an algorithm. Well, that's Come the on. thing. Normally, I don't. But for this, okay, for this particular thing, it just doesn't quite gel. Um, doing, doing the arithmetic each yeah. time. I, I must say that, like I mentioned, the resistance sibling theory, which I can you can do in your head relatively simply, but I, I do slightly struggle with the table. But that's not a problem because you've got the table. Yeah, I do. My, my favorite version of the character sheet is the one from this because this game, as well as being available as a giveaway in a magazine and on the internet, was for a time, uh, sadly all too short a time because they didn't publish anywhere near the number of supplements they were going to. Uh, it was in print from Heliograph. This was about twenty twenty one years ago, and it was a nice little smallish paperback with a terrific character sheet. And that's the one that's got a uh, little rules summary and the table at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, you've only got three characteristics that's something else in this it's mm-hmm. mind, body and soul so you really don't have to sort of obsess over being too precise on things, there is a general assumption that if you've got a skill in something, like if you've got language, in fact it takes you through examples where it's you're going to go and buy a box of matches and you've got French Yeah, well of course you can buy a box of matches, that's not yeah. a problem You know, then it goes up into the more difficult things that you might be trying so you've got that assumption that you're basically competent. That's fine. Nah, a major point of divergence from Cthulhu, then. Oh no, I mean Cthulhu. Cthulhu, you're the most skilled marksman in the world, and you're missing one in five shots. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm not saying Cthulhu is a perfect system, but it's very intuitive. I, I think it does anticipate some of the things that, that have come in and become pretty much standard now. Of things like don't roll the dice unless the, unless it actually makes an important difference. Yeah, that is yeah. Uh, the, and, and of um, course, having a universal mechanic was was a thing that a lot of games were starting to do then, but there are plenty of games we still play that don't do it. Yeah, although it isn't really touted as a universal mechanic or anything, no, very little's made of it from that point of view. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, it just happens to be. I think he wanted a very simple system. Interestingly, reviews, particularly reviews from a while ago, uh, just talk about oh, just ignore the system, play it with your favourite thing because the. the the um, supplements and the uh, supplemental material and resources are what's really interesting. But I, I don't know, I really like the system. That said, the available stuff that you get for the, well now, for nothing, but you can donate, uh, is astonishing. Not, I mean, there's fiction articles, there's hundreds of photos, stereoscopic images, uh, all kinds of, of genuine articles from the time, old adverts and things that it's scanned in. It just seems to be endless. I keep finding mm. bits, the, the files on my hard drive, where I was like, what is this? Oh, it's Forgotten Futures. Uh, there's just an endless supply of them. 
Yeah. And it's it will send you off buying or downloading so many books. So mm-hmm. many books. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, would you say there's anything about the system, or, or indeed the setting, that, that, that alters your style of play uh, as, as player or GM? Hmm. Or do, does it just let you do the you, thing you do better? Well, you do have to remember that people are fragile, because it's got that kind of mercenary spies, private eyes thing, which is another game that doesn't let you really act exactly like an action hero would in a movie these days. You're much more vulnerable, and you can really be taken out quite easily if you're not careful. Yes, you can fudge that kind of thing, but as a player, you've got to be aware of that. And as a GM, you want to you want to think, okay, what sort of damage am I going to be throwing towards these people if they do something foolish? Mm. And I think that you don't necessarily have to sort of reduce the damage or increase the damage to get a good result. You. It makes me think about what's the environment and what are the circumstances. How is somebody going to act? You know, oh, let's say we're in Victorian London. You're not going to have a lot of firefights as a general rule in, you know, Belgravia. Mm. And so that kind of setting, the sort of weird default option that it's got of a lot of it's a little bit upper class, does change the way people would act. You know, you would expect that the uh, the villain may actually let you go when he's got you're dead in his sights because he is a gentleman after all and Mm. you're at a disadvantage that's not of your own doing and you can play all those things into it particularly when you get to the the melodrama rules, (laughs) the Victorian villainy bit, where you can actually have the villain walks to the side of the stage and sings about how he's going to do away with this do-gooder and sweep the girl off her feet. See, I chose not to use that in (laughs) when I... uh, But you do all that, and then the the hero is actually there going, I'm sorry, did you say something? No, no. And he's, you know, you're singing this out. It's all done in this kind of stage where little does he know that I'm only after her father's secret formula. Oh, we did that. If you want yeah, to play it in a that. super camp melodramatic mode, it's got the rules for it. Or yeah. you can play as children, or dogs. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> or rabbits. No, it doesn't, doesn't give you an option for rabbits, I don't think. But no, no you, you want to get some and burrows for that. Yeah. Or the original. <laughs> or fudge. Oh, how, how can, in, in a game about intelligent rabbits, how can you resist running down to GURPS? I mean, really. Yeah. Converts very easily to fudge. I do have <laughs> two copies of GURPS, Pennies and Boris, so it's not like I'm against it. <laughs> <laughs> I've never yeah. played, I'm just saying, I've never played Pennies and Boris. I would be up for that. Cool. Um, That's how I operate. I I think if you have mathematical ability, you're allowed to use three. (laughs) Yeah. But you're seen as some weird arcane thing. (laughs) You're You're boffin. You're seen as a wizard, basically. Speaking of arcane, of course, there is an optional magic system, because um, there's a supernatural setting based on William Hope Hodgson's Karnaki cylinders. Mm. Um... So it's got things that are outside, although I said it's on a human scale, and it, it is basically, it does have extras that will let you deal with things that are more fantastical than scientific, if that's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Bearing in mind, of course, that a lot of the scientific things seem very fantastical, because that's what science was at the time, you know, people were extrapolating. There are some wonderful stories um, where you actually read them, and they seem completely bonkers, uh, because... 
ideas about microbes and electricity are really surprisingly primitive, even going back just 150 years. You get a lot of these stories from um, you know, pretty much up to Wells that are talking about things that you just think of as every day, and yet you realise that there are stories about them in the papers, and people just don't know what to think. You know, are bacteria going to be these horrible killers that are all around us that we can't see? Uh, which is basically like from beyond, isn't it, in uh, Lovecraft? Mm. It's not that long ago, before, uh, what's the name of the, the doctor who basically worked out the cause of agent of cholera, because it mm. came from a single... Uh, a Snow. single water pump in a, in a district in London that the asthma theory still has you know that, that diseases came from they just smells, was yeah. generated from bad smells yeah so that, was, that wasn't that long ago that was terrific, that era terrific story where um, electricity yeah. is basically loose um, this this, this uh, I don't know if it was an earthquake or something but anyway the the ground is electrified and it acts as if the electrical fluid, I think they refer to it as, because they want, really is a kind of malevolent liquid thing. Um, and it's, it takes great delight in going on about how the, uh, the Maltman's horse is getting electrocuted and people are desperate to try and avoid it. And there's this wonderful sense that you could do this with electricity because <laughs> the people reading the story don't know how it works either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little harder with a modern gamer who might go, oh come on, because it's hard to cut off that knowledge to just immediately say, well I put on a pair of wellies and I'm fine. Well I guess that's why you have atomic horror in the 50s, isn't it? Ah, yeah. But, this may surprise you, the first description of an atomic weapon, a bomb going off, is actually in a scientific romance. Um, it's called The Crack of Doom, and it's by Robert Crombie, and I think that was 1894? Something like that, and it actually does describe what is a, a nuclear explosion. The first time, mm. the first use of the term atomic bomb was H.G. Wells. Mm-hmm. Really? So, so his, his are long, long-lasting weapons rather than it was an idea of a thing long before it was a thing you know the Manhattan mm-hmm. Project they weren't just like they were like we need to make the atomic bomb it wasn't yeah. like the actual science to say this might be possible mostly happens in the 20s yeah and mm-hmm. also the scary 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 thing is um, that thing of the um, everlasting fire that actually was mathematically not necessarily impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they tried and, it anyway, didn't they? And they, they thought that there was a finite chance that it could happen. That's with some particle accelerators, it was a chance of creating a killer strange destroy the entire planet. Yeah, that that was the black hole thing. The, the, there is an apocryphal telegram <laughs> set, sent from that. the uh, Trinity test site. Yeah. Still alive, no atmosphere recognition. <laughs> Yes. Huh. I mean, yeah. you would think if there was a non-zero chance of destroying the entire world. Well, the thing is that the theory was, in fact, at this point, pretty much discredited. Okay. So, if it was sent, it was sent as a joke. But yeah. But not yeah. necessarily a hundred percent. You'd want to be pretty <laughs> sure, wouldn't you? I'm pretty it's certain this isn't going to actually wipe out all life on on Earth. Yeah, yeah, it's maybe, uh, maybe yeah. not. I mean, it's but probably. But there's no other way to test the theory. It's a really neat theory. Well, this is <laughs> <laughs> spoken like a true scientist, right? 
Yeah, I, I, I think Davros, isn't it? Do you know you get yeah. a surprising number of actual scientists writing this stuff as well? Um, <laughs> Camille Flammarion, mm-hmm. uh, the astronomer who did a lot of work on the canals of Mars. That was uh, Schiaparelli, is it? Who? Yeah. Who originally saw them and thought that they were canals? And Percy Lovell, who I think. Oh, I saw this Lovell, but yeah. they they all wrote. Uh, well, they were all basing uh, their oh, works oh, yeah. on Schiaparelli. Giovanni Schiaparelli, am I right there? Um, I'm not right. really. I'm not Mr. Memory, you see. Um, I'm not good at that at all. He gets shot, doesn't he, in the book? Anyway, um, so you've actually got scientific romances being put up by scientists because it's a terrific way for them to sort of put some of their theories out there to people. And some of them mm-hmm. obviously seem mental now, but really, you're you're looking at a sort of almost a public relations exercise for science in these stories. Mm-hmm. And there's a terrific sense of excitement because science was big news. You, know, you can yeah. still have a guy in his garden shed making a phenomenal discovery. Mm-hmm. Really something that could change the world at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and when and when did the light bulb, is... the electric light bulb was, you know, <laughs> that's the sort of thing that people were coming up with around this time, successful working electric light bulbs, which we think of these days as just an everyday occurrence. But back then, being able to just have a light come on and not blow your house up. Big thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, also, um, just just the amount of lights. Um, a friend of mine just, just moved into a new place and was, was getting getting some lights for us and thought, okay, I'll get some you know, reasonably dim lights for, the, for this area. Mm-hmm. Got something, looked up, because uh, this, this is uh, William Stoddard, uh, author of GURPS Steampunk, as it happens, oh, who, yeah, who recently yeah. wrote, wrote a thing for GURPS that involved calculation of light levels. So he thought, right, you know, r- run them through this. Okay, th- th- so this, is, this is the level of light uh, f- from from a decent sized chandelier of of the late eighteen hundreds that people were saying, <laughs> "My God, this is so bright! I've never seen anything like it indoors before." Mm. And they couldn't see to read then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the gas lights gave out very little light. It wasn't until about eighteen ninety that the gas mantle was invented, which increases the amount of light, the, the uniformity. Of and clarity of the light mm. enormously. Before that, they're effectively just candles that don't burn out. A Bunsen mm. burner, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're they're not even really as powerful as a Bunsen burner. Well, mm. if if they are, then you're about to have a big problem. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's the whole the whole thing about gaslighting uh, is down mm. to the fact that whenever this guy goes and turns on another light, it reduces the level of the light. His wife thinks something's happening to the light and he keeps saying no no it's not and that's where the term comes from from this play uh, gaslighting oh. he's up to no good oh, oh, she... oh. spoiler by the way you know. yeah <laughs> uh, if you if you haven't seen the play gaslight go and see it it's amazing okay. i'll watch one of the films mm-hmm. i should point out that i'm not bothered about giving spoilers for something that came out that long ago. I wasn't actually worried about spoilers, I just remembered and uh, like, no, if Nick hasn't seen it, he really I should. I don't, I don't get out much nowadays. <laughs> well, funny you should say that, because neither does anybody, really, and you actually probably, I suspect if you actually have a look around, you can probably find the play to download. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, I, well, I so several film versions. Yeah. yeah, it was, the version I saw on stage was very creepy, it was very well done. Mm. But yes, I mean, ga- gaslighting is a very common term, and it comes from this play that that worked on the um, the fact that gaslights weren't very good. You turn turn one on, and all the others go dimmer. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow. Okay. So, cool. 
I you know, drifting a bit away from the topic, but mm. <laughs> it was things like that, and the fact that it drew me into researching stuff and reading these stories that came from from that period before science fiction pretty much moved on to starships and ray guns. Really, it, it's even the journeys into space are mostly solar system stuff, and yes, they're silly when you look at them now and think it's probably not true that Venus is literally heaven where your soul goes to, but that does crop up. We know that you're not going to go big game hunting on Jupiter. doesn't have any lakes. Very big mountains game. You mind. It, it also doesn't have a brief offhand uh, explanation of why uh, the uh, gravity is pretty much normal. Oh, oh, oh I okay. forgot the best bit. The guys who are on that hunting expedition are from the... Uh, is it the Terran Axial... A straightening company or something like that. Basically, they're in the, they're in the business of straightening the axis of the planet so that they can get the seasons to be a bit more even. <laughs> okay, I'm sure that wouldn't cause any problem. <laughs> no. That's the sort of idea that yeah. the richest man in the world thinks is a goer. And hey, it's a bit, see any bit chilly in December, isn't it? Let's straighten the planet out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We could feed the we, we could end disease. How about if we tilt this, then maybe it'll be summer a bit longer in some areas, or I might get a nice climate in Switzerland. <laughs> so, well, uh, I, I think we've we've run out of uh, talking about the game to some extent. But any yeah, any, uh, any last points on on that? Um, but one of the things about it, I think, is it's a sufficiently simple. Yeah, obviously you can you can sophisticate it as much as you like, but the core system is sufficiently simple. There's, there's not really a lot to say about it. I think it presents skills. it very well. It's um, HTML or there's PDFs of a lot of it. You can just get the whole thing in your browser, and it's got like a nice little thing where you click on the gallery and the uh, articles mm. and all the different pieces. It's it's pretty well. The um, character generator doesn't work anymore because it's an old version of Java. Sure. Um, so I've so from listening to it, uh, so obviously Nick's character persists through multiple adventures in this. You mean Doctor Crowner? No. Uh, oh, mean, you mean Emmeline? 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 I do. I do um, like Emmeline. She's, not, um, she's mad as a yeah. bag of frogs, Emmeline. Not my most famous character, but I'm very. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, so, I mean, there's the the overlap from Fist of God to Shangri La, uh, and then obviously Emmeline continues on into the Moody and Grey adventures, mm. uh, which means there is some character advancement. Um, and I don't know, I personally feel like the way character advancement, or, uh, yeah, character advancement and character development are handled in games is, is an interesting thing. And the system for this has, um, uh, raised some eyebrows amongst the players, uh, as I recall, uh, when it was explained. It I must admit, I'm terrible about I do, it's, it's quite rudimentary the experience. I mean, you don't have a lot of options. Well, oh, you're, you're basically nudging up your skills. It, it's got the thing that, that I, I very much dislike of basically you spend some points and then you make a die roll and may, maybe yeah. and you and maybe you've lost those points. You can also keep the points and just spend them as kind of effectively fate points. Yes, die rolls in play if you want to do that. But that's less. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I suppose I, 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 yeah. we've never done that because it is one point. Yep. Changes yeah. the d- changes the yep. die roll by one. Also, yeah. I think I suppose it before the roll. He's not a generous man. I'll I'll grant you that. I don't <laughs> <met> Mr. Rowland, <laughs> but 
<laughs> he doesn't give the players a lot to work with there. Yeah. No. So fair enough. Yeah, no, I will take the yeah, that's Um Yeah, I thought that was interesting because obviously that, that sort of thing is very much out of favour in most more recent games. Mm. Um, but is, is, you know, an interesting way of approaching it. I thought. But really, well, it you, hasn't you, been changed very much at all since '93. I mean, there've been a few revisions, but they've been pretty minor. Yeah, I mean, you, you can get to the point where if, if you effectively fumble while attempting to improve a skill, you can never improve that skill. Which, to me, is just yes. is not is just not not fun. But yeah, yes. but easy to ignore. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't fundamentally break anything if you just go. Actually, no, that's not fair. Like, yeah, I mean, if you could say, a, you know, build up points equal to your current level and get a plus one, but w- that wouldn't yeah. break the game. It's all a bit odd, you know, the whole idea of experience, the whole idea that you... That you can learn really, stuff, yeah. I, I, I yeah, agree, it's, it's completely impossible. Very <laughs> I mean, you get, well, yeah, I suppose. Anyway, I, won't do, um, I, I don't think it would be a worse game without an experience system at all, I suppose, because it's not really, not really that sort of game. It's a bit You're like... You're really competent as well. Yeah. Partly because right. the skills are so broad. Yeah, I, I, yeah, you're competent. Uh, well, sorry. Other than Doctor Crowther in the realm of his profession, where his character came out of the fact that you rolled so badly, <laughs> Until he fluffed up an appendicitis roll very you, early. On. You kept kept killing the patients, and this developed into such a theme. <laughs> that actually, the, then, the character when you of Doctor Crowther me, just he actually was an evil character, killer doctor who was basically yeah. in it for the money. And yes, people I feel like Doctor Crowther weathered the storm of a few accidental disasters and thought, "Hang on, I've come out of that rather well." Wonderful things about that wasn't part of his character when you brought him. No, that's when, why. In that's your why head, I. He was a good doctor. Yeah, exactly. That's why I prefer dice based systems. That's just, to me, that's where these things come from. But, there we are. Mm. We're all looking for different things. Oh, and something I would add, which I think is, is quite good and, um, not that usual in gaming. It was originally shareware and you would register so that you could get, um, get a floppy disk or CDs which had got everything on. Now it's because of changes in, uh, in the laws basically. He put it to, it's free to access the whole lot and donations are, yeah. um, you know, encouraged and mm-hmm. I think perfectly reasonable because there's a huge mm-hmm. amount of work in oh, this. Yeah. But he's always given, uh, I think 10%, possibly slightly more, uh, to cancer research, and he does other games which he gives money to Medicine Sans Frontier, and he's raised thousands of pounds mm. through this game and a couple of others by doing that. You know, which uh, he doesn't need to, but he's always mm. done it. And uh, when he shifted from the shareware model, uh, he did offer refunds to all the registered users he could find. He did. Yes. Almost, almost oh, all yeah. of them said no, give it to charity instead, but. Yeah, that's the sort of. Mm. Oh, you, you've got to be a bit of a heel to like say that. no. Send me back, you know, seven pounds or whatever I'm <laughs> 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 He's a he's a lab technician. Uh, he's, 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 he's retired now, but yeah, he's retired. But well, yeah. I did. I mean, friend, a friend, friend of mine. His first job was working with him. So uh, oh, really? mm. that's yeah. one of the most he... recognisable names in English role playing games. Is yeah. Didn't make enough money out of it. Have it as first job. No. Fun. Well, welcome to role playing. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, outside of 
D and D and you might say GURPS, but you're probably talking. Uh, GURPS has two full time staff. Yeah, there we are. And Steve, that's include Steve Jackson really Chaosium? Money with things like Chaosium maybe? Not They're the only so. one of the few. Mm. What, How many yeah. times Chaosium were bankrupt? That's true. That's true. <laughs> but they are still a company, which is not much to couldn't say that for many uh, no, for, the, the only way, as they say, to make a uh, small fortune in gaming is to start with a larger one. Yeah, well <laughs> you, you could say that publishing a set of rules for Tecumel it is death to a role-playing company because every company that does it is no longer in existence. But that's just ninety-five percent of role-playing companies are no longer. In <laughs> yes, <that's true. laughs> yeah. Some people see a curse. We just see well, statistics are afraid. But yes, for me, um, probably the game that that kind of changed my other hobbies more than anything else, mm. and certainly mm. filled up far more of my book space. Huh. <laughs> Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank. You. I I love it. I, I've already said it, so it's it's, it's very delightful. Yeah, I mean, I, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah, it's I the game that we go. It is for, for us as a group. It's our de facto. We can't think of anything else. We'll play something in this. Or call it to be fair. Yeah, but no, John's but, 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 and, and 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 then there are other things. I mean, like Arcana you know, spam. You are John. You know, but it's also things like you know that you you. You've you've chosen to actually done, run some things specifically in this that maybe wouldn't be otherwise the uh, the. the uh, I don't think it's let us down, which is mm. no, which is good. No, not at all. And the, and and yeah. whereas, say for example, Genesis, we've got a couple of us like it. You don't particularly like it. Um, there's a few others where maybe I'm not so keen on um, and bits and pieces, mostly involving sort of. Um, the annoying. I mean, so I mean, at some point we'll talk about Pendragon, but um, oh, um, oh, I get back to. But but my issue there is just purely and simply because you know, you guys survived, I didn't. Yeah. So, oh. and that's and that's, that's where it becomes your outlook, isn't it? That's where it becomes hard because suddenly I'm coming into it completely fresh, and you guys have got uh, new characters. Ed, Eddie got a steering wheel column through his midsection. Yeah, I know, but that didn't matter because that was cock, and you everyone dies in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, your expectations are a little different, I suppose. Yeah. Anyway, I, I think we could reasonably wrap that up there. Oh, yeah, yeah I think we could have wrapped it up two hours ago. <laughs> Thank you, Marcus, <laughs> for a wonderful wow. game. Yes, yeah. definitely. And like I say, it's definitely our go to. I, I think definitely for Wharton Hall. It's is, our tedious Sunday roast when you can't be bothered I mean, that's what we're saying, isn't it? It's no, it's, no, no, it's actually it's, not, it's I would the, say. It's the coronation street when there's nothing else. Point about wrapping up. No. I would disagree. I think you've been drinking a lot. It's a while since you took a break. How are you feeling? Yeah, no, it's the game we enjoy. And we always enjoy. Are you planning to run more? Sorry, you don't have to say it on air. Yeah, I am, actually. Hey! There we are. Because, um, I, because I think I've got a, an, <laughs> what started off as the the smallest, almost locked room mystery adventure I could come up with. It's got a bit out of hand, so I just I keep finding ideas with this game. It's, it's yeah, wonderful for that. Brilliant. Mm. Right, go oh, on, go online, read the articles, read a few of the stories. You know, don't even look at the mechanics to start with. Just go and enjoy the actual the, 
worlds. The yeah. complete loonies who thought that hunters on the back of a giant tortoise with a chicken's head was the sort of thing people wanted to read about. It's glorious. <laughs> and it's free. Right. Play it and then donate. Yeah. And good night. Cheers. Yeah, brilliant. Bye. Good night. Good night. Cheers. Bye all. Bye. Bye. Bye.